I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, June 20th, 2017. Coming up, we'll discuss an elusive illness that affects over 1 million Americans, chronic fatigue syndrome, and what's known about its causes, its mechanisms, and treatments, and how it overlaps with other illnesses. Our guest is science writer Julie Raymeyer, whose memoir on the subject has just been published. And Boulder mathematician Christopher Clack is now involved in a bitter scientific feud. It centers on this. Should the U.S. go for 80% renewable energy within 15 years or go for broke 100% renewable energy? Stay tuned for his answer. We begin with a look at some of the brief science calendar items in our area. So as we noted on the show last week, this is National Pollinator Week. For info on what's happening this week uh, and how you can get involved, check out the following organizations. There's Be Safe Boulder, which is now People and Pollinators Action Network, as well as the Colorado State Beekeeper Association and the Butterfly Pavilion. And there's also a nonprofit in town called Growing Gardens. It's based in Boulder, and it now offers workshops on how to become a beekeeper. Check it out on growinggardens.org. And tune into KGNU this Friday on The Morning Magazine at 8 o'clock to hear more coverage of the local efforts to help pollinators. And tomorrow night in Denver, Cafe Scientific Colorado will host a talk on HIV and AIDS. A lot has changed since AIDS was first recognized in 1981, such as the fact that HIV-1, the cause of the AIDS epidemic, has been, found, has been around for nearly a century. And we now have safe drugs that can treat and prevent HIV infection, along with ways to cure an HIV infection. Tomorrow night's Cafe Sci will be all about this and other advances in HIV AIDS research, including what remains unknown. The speaker will be Dr. Thomas Campbell. He's a professor of medicine and microbiology at the University of Colorado School of Medicine in Aurora. Tonight, tomorrow night's Cafe Sci will begin at 6.30 at Brooklyn's near Lodo in Denver. Come early if you want to eat and socialize. And on Thursday night this week, June 22nd, one of our guests today, science writer Julie Raymeyer, will speak at the Boulder Bookstore about her new book about chronic fatigue syndrome. It's a memoir called Through the Shadowlands, a science writer's odyssey into the illness science doesn't understand. The talk will start at 7.30. KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. The Washington Post reported yesterday that a bitter feud has erupted among two science groups that are both pushing the U.S. for becoming a renewable energy nation. On one side of this feud are experts such as Boulder mathematician Christopher Clack. On the other side of this feud is Mark Jacobson from Stanford University. Both sides believe in renewable energy and they both want a national push to get there for the entire nation. And they're battling about how to do it. To find out more with us now is mathematician Chris Clack. Chris, welcome to KGNU. Hi, thank you. Nice to be here. And and thank you for talking with us there in Atlanta. Where what brings you to Atlanta? Uh, I'm actually at a conference called the uh, UVIG conference, which is the Utility Variable Integration Group, uh, to talk about how to uh, push 
uh, integration of wind and solar into the grid. Okay, so you're a fan of wind and solar for the nation. And in fact, tell us about your expertise and what your plan is for how to get the United States to be mostly a renewable a nation by the year 2030. Yeah, absolutely. I've been working on modeling uh, the grid and how to uh, remove carbon from uh, the grid. And we're doing this. Uh, the main the main ways to do this is with wind and solar. Um, unfortunately, there is enough a limit, but we've been looking at uh, using a national transmission system and how it would be, pay be paid for uh, with colleagues at NOAA to, to basically integrate as much renewables as possible, as cheap as possible, and as fast as possible. Now, NOAA, that's here in Boulder, is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Yeah, that's correct. That's where I used to work um, before moving on to my uh, company. Well, you guys know a lot about the weather, and you think that if you use the weather in a national scale, you can find some places where the wind is blowing, some places where the sun is shining, and as long as you move it across the whole nation to the places that need that energy, you don't need a lot of other resources to power our electricity and our nation. Is that a good way to say it? Yeah, I mean, we there's there is enough a limit, but what we're saying is that you can get the majority uh, up to eighty percent uh, from those sources if you go to the national scale. And unfortunately, that's something uh, at the moment that we're not aiming towards uh, with the current administration. But it's something that we should all be pushing for because no matter who you agree with in terms of uh, how we get there in the future, a larger grid is better for all those scenarios. Meaning that if Colorado just tries to be a renewable entry uh, nation, excuse me, in a renewable energy state, it's really not big enough to be sure the wind is blowing strongly enough to power the entire state. But maybe Florida would have enough wind that day and could power Colorado. Quite right, yeah. So we, what you want to use is the, is the fact that the, because we know that wind and solar are variable, uh, it means that if you're on a small scale, it actually harms you in terms of needing a lot of backup. But if you go to larger scales, that variability actually helps you. And you can buy it from, say, Florida or Montana uh, when you've got low periods. And when you've got high periods, you can, of course, sell them to those other regions as well. Now, the key is this big transmission line that just is a grid across the entire United States that we do not have yet. Is that correct? Yeah, so the, the big enabling feature is this high voltage direct current transmission system that we modeled and it has to be paid for. But if you do that, you get what's called a three to one ratio from benefits to cost, which means for every dollar you spend on that, you will get three dollars back uh, in the energy system by building it. Now, the United States is not on a path to make this national energy grid, but you and Mark Jacobson from Stanford University both agree that a national grid is important or is that where you disagree? No, so we, we model it and we um, look at the power flow and we see whether we can do it and whether it's cost effective. Uh, they just assume that it exists in their model. Uh-oh. So there are some differences between the two of you. As a, as a recap, you and your group are saying that the United States in 15 years could become a renewable energy nation up to 80%, meaning we'd still use fossil fuels, we'd still use nuclear, but mm -hmm. only for 20% of power. Is that a summary? So we actually, uh, it's eight, the main scenarios that we did in our nature climate change paper was 80% carbon free. So the 80% actually included the nuclear in that calculation. We're actually, for that particular scenario, we're looking at more like 65% for wind and solar. Um, but that's still um, uh, very, very much larger than we are today. And what we've found is with other scenarios is you can push to 80% with no real extra difficulties compared to that 65%. Okay, but you still say that we need some carbon... Uh, creating fuels to 
be able to do this in a cost-effective way in 15 years? So, yeah, with the costs uh, available today, that last 20% or so um, is very, very expensive to get rid of if you don't use either carbon-based or some other novel technology. And what we've always focused on with our work is using today's technology because 15 years is a very, very short period of time in, in the energy sector. And so we really can only be deploying stuff that we, we know can work today. Okay, that's what you're saying, and you're, you mm -hmm. believe that this would be cost-effective. It would be no more expensive than using our cheapest fossil fuels. But for the last 20% of the moment, the natural gas is the, the cheapest uh, extra well, uh, part. But, be, but meaning 80% renewable energy nation oh, yes. Uh, yes. would be just as affordable to do as being what we are right now, which is what? How much, how much fossil fuel and uh, yeah, carbon so stuff do we use today? So roughly, um, it's actually on its head, roughly today we're using 80% fossil fuels and roughly 20% clean energy. And you can flip it on its head to roughly 80% clean energy and 20% fossil fuels for roughly you know, 15% cheaper than today. Now, Chris Klatt, you and your group at NOAA have been friends and colleagues of Mark Jacobson at Stanford University for a long time, but now you, mm -hmm. you two are duking it out. What, what is it about Mark? First of all, what is Mark Jacobson's plan? So Mark Jacobson's plan is to have everything, the entire economy, run on wind, water, and sun by 2050. That's the main premise of their plan. Well, that's just another 20 years past when you want to do it. Um, couldn't we do that? Unfortunately, when you look at um, what we're doing, I mean, I'm not saying we can't do it. But what we tried to look at was look at the science that they did uh, to show it. And unfortunately, the science they did to show it didn't didn't really hold up to scrutiny. And when we looked at the numbers, the amount of extra um, energy we'd have to put in to build all these new um, technologies, for example, hydrogen planes and hydrogen ships, um, would be an astronomical extra burden on the economy. So that's that's your issue, and Mark Jacobson is disputing this now and saying his numbers are good. Um, do we benefit by hearing this publicly as a feud among scientists? Well, I think I think it's a double-edged sword. I think partly it is good because it, it shows that we all care, and we're all we all have the same goals, um, Professor Jacobson and uh, our team and everyone else. Uh, that we, we worked on the paper, have the same goal of wanting to remove carbon from the atmosphere. And I think one of the benefits of what Mark Jacobson has done in the past is he's changed the question um, to some degree about what we're talking about. And yes, people might think this is far off in the future, but 15 years or 25 years when you're talking about the energy sector is is a very, very slow slow time frame. Uh, sorry, a very near time frame. Uh, and we really need to be talking about these problems now because uh, as we move down the road, we want to make sure it's clear to the public about what we need to do to get there, because keeping um, a balanced and open approach will help everyone in the long run. Okay. Well, I'd, we'd love to talk with you more, but we're going to close for now. I'm Shelley Schlender. Our guest has been Christopher Clack. He heads up the company Vibrant Clean Energy. We've been speaking with him about what kinds of plans might help the U.S. truly become a renewable energy nation. And let's hope that this battle between you all and Stanford's Mark Jacobson will mean that we all have a better idea about how to move ahead. Thank you for Thank joining you. us. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. So imagine spending years waking up so sore and fatigued many mornings that you can barely move, much less walk, and traversing the country to find doctors who could tell you what you have, but only to find out that they don't really know. 
and then feeling your friendships and professional relationships start to fray as people question whether you're making up the illness. For those who've suffered from chronic fatigue syndrome, also called ME, or a similar disease, our guest story may sound painfully familiar. Julie Raymeyer is a science and math writer whose new book about chronic fatigue syndrome has just been published. It's a memoir called Through the Shadowlands, a science writer's odyssey into an illness science doesn't understand. Julie will speak about her book Thursday night at 7.30 at the Boulder Bookstore. She's visiting Boulder this week from her home in Santa Fe. Julie, welcome to How on Earth. What a pleasure to be here. So first, I know this is a nebulous illness and it overlaps with several others. So define as clearly as you and to the extent you know, scientists can, what is chronic fatigue syndrome, also known as ME, or if I pronounce this correctly, myalgic encephalomyelitis. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the hallmark symptom of chronic fatigue syndrome actually isn't fatigue at all. It's exercise intolerance. So Intolerance. Intolerance, yes. So when you have... Uh, MECFS, then, and you push yourself, then you feel much, much worse the next day. So in contrast to what you kind of expect, that if you exercise and get active, it'll make you feel better. Right, you strengthen your muscles, you strengthen your heart. Exactly. For chronic fatigue syndrome patients, it makes them feel worse. um, There are a variety of other symptoms that are critical to the disease, too. Things like uh, cognitive problems, what's called orthostatic intolerance, where you can't regulate your blood pressure and heart rate when you stand up. Um, And of course, that rest doesn't make you feel better either. So you get more dizzy? Um, It's not actually, yeah, that's what I thought too, was that it would, that would mean dizziness, but it's actually not dizziness. It's just, it's just that you feel terrible when you stand up. I had a test for this done um, where they had me totally immobile and vertical and tested my heart rate and and blood pressure and after eight minutes I almost passed out Wow! and um, my you know my heart rate my heart was pounding and my blood pressure was I think 88 over 50 or 82 over 50 that's what it was Um, so you describe what it was like then what was it like at your worst I mean, clearly there wasn't just one moment where you're like, oh, this must be it. I've got right. CFS. Right. Well, in my worst, I couldn't turn over in bed. Mm. And for me, um, it expressed itself with neurological problems, which is quite common in more severe cases. Um, mild cases, often not, but severe cases typically do have neurological problems. So, Like what? Well, like when I couldn't turn over in bed, it wasn't that I was too tired to turn over in bed. It was that I could not like recruit my muscles to move. Um, the neurological problems also express themselves in terms of cognitive effects. Like it can be extremely difficult to, to speak. Sometimes people can't speak at all for extended periods. Uh, one person I know spent two years without being able to speak. Wow. And it's often, well, it does have some overlaps in terms of symptoms with others. I mean, even MS, right? Multiple sclerosis and certainly Epstein-Barr. Talk right. about sort of what's known about those overlaps and then clearly the differences. Right. So there are definitely overlaps with other illnesses. And really, we need a lot more research to be able to very precisely define even what this disease is. Mm-hmm. Or, And we also don't know whether the same mechanism is breaking in multiple patients. So it may be that 
within this group of patients mm -hmm. who have these generally similar symptoms, that there are different mechanisms going on and that there really are multiple diseases here, and we don't know enough to know that. My sense with these chronic illnesses is that we're kind of dealing with a more complicated paradigm than we're used to. We're used to having uh, one thing that breaks and it causes one set of symptoms and you fix that one thing and patients get better. And my sense with chronic fatigue syndrome is that what's going on is there are multiple triggers. There are multiple things that can go wrong for patients and together they break something. So patients get a very bad virus, they get a toxic exposure, um, they get a trauma like a car accident or even a pregnancy, and in combination it's too much stress on their body, and there's something that breaks, and we don't know what that something is. We don't know if it's one something or multiple somethings. So it's kind of the perfect storm. All exactly. these things come together and something hits a tipping point. That's exactly right. And I think, I think with these chronic illnesses that we need a more complicated paradigm in order to be able to encapsulate what's going on. Yeah, so first just some of the numbers, like roughly how many people in the U.S. alone suffer from this CFS ME? About a million in the U.S. is the best estimate, though we don't have very good research on that either. And the best estimate worldwide is 30 million. So it's a it's a big problem. Well, it's so, not a rare disease. So if it's one plus in the U.S., are we getting a sense that more and more are getting it? And if so, is it due to better testing? We have or? no idea. <laughs> there is no research going on about prevalence. Zero. So, I mean, it could have tripled. It could be going away. We haven't a clue. And that raises the question of funding. I mean, why is it? from your perspective, well, what is the funding like and, and why so little? I mean, it's gone up a right. little bit, right? That's <laughs> right. So for many, many years, the NIH funded research at about $5 million a year. So that's five bucks a patient. By contrast, multiple sclerosis, which is similarly devastating and which receives a sort of appropriate amount of funding for the uh, disability it causes, it gets about $300 per patient. Um, HIV AIDS, by contrast, gets $3,000 per patient. Mm -hmm. So five bucks a patient is, is chump change, and $5 million a year is just enough for like a handful of very small studies. Um, it's gone up to $13 million, which is still chump change. I mean, it's, it's not enough. It's, it's not a serious amount of money. And in fact, the fellow who's heading the MECFS research program at the NIH just a few days ago said that, that it needs to be 10 to 20 times higher. So it wasn't a pledge, but at least acknowledging this is paltry and we need more. Exactly, exactly. But the really good news is just in the last couple of years, MECFS has finally kind of gotten on the radar at NIH. They have increased the funding, uh, not enough, but still a significant amount. Um, and they're doing an in-house study as well. So they, they finally are really thinking about this illness f for the first time in decades. And... I think you would clearly say your case does not necessarily translate to other cases. I mean, everyone is so different. But I was fascinated how you came to, as a detective, as a science journalist and investigative journalist, to find the link with mold. Right. So what happened for me was in 2011, I was really disabled for a full year. I spent a year often unable to turn over in bed and wow. barely able to work and had exhausted all medical options at that point, pretty much. And so I was at a point of real desperation. And so I was pushed to pursue a theory that um, didn't seem to have a lot of scientific 
backup, as far as I could tell, which was that mold was the problem, and that and I met patients who had taken really extreme measures to avoid it, and claimed at least that as a result they had experienced really dramatic improvements. So, and at the time you were living where? I was living in Santa Fe. I was living in a pair of travel trailers. Uh, on my land because I'd rented out my house since I couldn't afford to pay my mortgage. <laughs> um, so their advice was to go to the desert for two weeks with none of my own belongings. They said all my stuff was likely to be contaminated with mold. And their prediction was while I was there, my body would get clear of mold. That was their phrase, to get clear. And that as a result of getting clear, when I came home and got re-exposed to my own stuff, I would react really strongly and clearly and then I would know that mold was doing me in, and by avoiding it, I would get better. So it's like an elimination diet for those who were maybe gluten intolerant or something. Very Take similar. it all out of the system and then see if you're that much more sensitized. Exactly. Sensitive to it. Yeah. That's exactly right. <laughs> and so I thought the whole thing was very likely cracked. <laughs> uh, but I didn't have any better ideas, and um, the patients were, you know, smart and impressive, and, and I figured it was worth a shot, and so I went. And, and I'm looking at the cover of your book, which does show a singular camper in a singular tent in the midst of a vast, vast desert. So you really took yourself with your dog, right? That's to right. Death Valley. That's, that's Hopefully exactly not right. in August because you're alive to tell <laughs> <No>. us about <laughs> it. It was February. <laughs> right. And then when I came home, 30 seconds in my trailers was enough to cripple me. So 30 it, seconds after being away for, what was this, two weeks? Two weeks. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was astonishing. And then... A week after I got back and stayed out of my trailers and away from my stuff, I went for a walk, and I ended up walking to the top of a 350-foot hill, which I hadn't been able to do for a year and a half. Wow. It was completely astonishing. And that was the beginning of this kind of miraculous recovery for me. I, I within months, was running again. It was really astonishing. I also... Um, had pretty extreme reactions when I was exposed to mold. So it's not like I was just home free. Um, right. I, I had to be very, very, very careful about um, avoiding exposures. And the mathematician and science journalist that you are, you didn't just stop at that. You did this fascinating, what you call the washcloth trial. Talk right. about your own uh, randomized, placebo-controlled, double-blind study. Exactly. So, so... I was so astonished by this experience that, and it seemed so far from what we understood scientifically, that I felt like I needed some scientific grounding for myself. And, and I couldn't help but worry that somehow I was deluding myself. So what I did was I got two packages of washcloths, identical, and I sent one into a moldy building and had them spread out mm. in this moldy building for a couple of weeks, and I kept one with me. And then I had a friend randomize them, hand them to my husband, one at a time. My husband didn't know whether it was contaminated or not. That was the double blinding part. Neither he or knew or he neither he nor I knew if the particular washcloth was contaminated. And then I held it up to my nose and breathed through it and said whether I thought it was contaminated or not. And the contaminated ones crippled me. I mean, within seconds, then I was paralyzed. And then I would take a shower, which incredibly restored me basically instantaneously. And then I'd do it again. And 
this experiment. To my great surprise, I did not get it 100% correct. It was like 80%, right? It, no, yeah. much more than that. It was, well, it was, I, I got, I had one, it was a dozen washcloths and I had one false positive and one false negative. Uh-huh. Um, uh, but it, it showed that I, if I couldn't detect mold, I had only a 2% chance of doing as well as I did. Fascinating. So there hasn't been much at all research on mold, though, right? There's been some research, but there's been little research on the human health effects of mold from breathing it in buildings directly. There's been a lot of research on the physiological impacts of mold because it's a problem for um, animals in, in agricultural settings. So we know a certain amount about the things that mold can do to us. What we don't know is whether it can do those things at the concentrations we get when we breathe in air from moldy buildings. Interesting. And we just got another minute, but I wanted to jump into this really controversial Lancet PACE trial that you write about a lot in your right. book that essentially summarized it as saying, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, so talk therapy and graduated well, increasing exercise can do the trick to cure Right. CFS, so one of the right? shocking things about this whole experience for me was realizing that science had not only abandoned my illness, it was saying things that were really not true. And that was the case with this trial. When I first heard about the trial, I was at my very sickest. And I knew that it couldn't be true because I had tried it. I mean, I had done therapy, and my first strategy and repeated strategy had been to build up my exercise. And what I learned was that I could maximize how much I did by stopping as soon as I thought, I'm a little tired. And then I dug into the trial and discovered shocking scientific problems, just shocking scientific problems. Even though this was a trial with more than 600 patients and an $8 million Exactly. Published in The Lancet, it sounded like it was really reliable, but it had enormous problems. Fascinating. So one, if there's any message to listeners out there, and I know they can hear you on Thursday night, but what might it be? Um, I, I think it would be that we really do have to take responsibility for our own health and, um, and that we can't, we have to use the tools of science ourselves and think scientifically about our own experiences in order to really make progress. Mm. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. That was science writer and math writer, Julie Ray Meyer, whose new book about chronic fatigue syndrome is just out. It's a memoir called Through the Shadowlands, a science writer's odyssey into an illness science doesn't understand. You can hear her speak on Thursday night, June 22nd at 7.30 at the Boulder Bookstore. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is I, Susan Moran. I also produced today's show, and my co-host, Shelley Schlender, was our engineer. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Shelley Schlender.